You're listening to the So What Podcast. Okay, so the name adoptionism comes from the idea that Christ was adopted by the Father to become Son. The adoptionist Christology proposes that Jesus Christ is not so much a savior as he is a pioneer. He achieved adoption, now he's shown us the way so we can do it too. But if you want salvation, you're going to have to do it. It's on you. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this episode, we are glad to be joined by Dr. Jim Papandrea. Dr. Papandrea received his PhD from Northwestern University, where he studied early Christian studies. He is currently Associate Professor of Church History at the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and is the author of numerous books on early Christianity and Christology, to include the earliest Christologies, Five Images of Christ in the Post-Apostolic Age. Before we head over to our discussion, we'd like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Well, let's head over to our interview with Dr. Papandrea. Dr. Papandrea, thank you so much for being on So What Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. It's uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, asking me. So the reason I invited you on the show is because I came across a book very recently that you have written. Uh, it is called The Earliest Christologies, Five Images of Christ in the Post-Apostolic Age. Uh, and that kind of goes right in line with what we're talking about, that being uh, early Christologies and really early heresies. Uh, so what led you to write that book uh, before we jump into our conversation? Well, it's really sort of the end uh, or culmination of a long process of my own study and then um, my own preparation for the lectures that I give in my uh, church history course. Uh, here at Garrett Evangelical. So um, I teach church history. And, you know, one of the things you do when you teach church history is you have to talk about historical theology. You have to talk about the big debates over theology. And um, you have to talk about the the heresies and, and what is orthodoxy and the difference. And um, I've always been a real proponent of trying to help students understand the differences between the different ways of understanding Christ in the early church and why those differences matter. And so this book sort of, uh, you know, the next, the next phase in that process. So the reason we wanted you to come on today was to talk about Ebion and adoptionism. Uh, and you wrote 
extensively about adoptionism in the book that uh, we just mentioned. But before we get there, I kind of wanted to ask this first question, uh, who is Ebion? And then we can go on to how is that related to adoptionism and what is adoptionism? So the first question, who is Ebion? Well, you know, Ebion is a uh, person who never existed. And uh, <laughs> and so basically the uh, the early adoptionists, uh, like the second century, um, many of them call themselves Ebionites. And uh, that comes from a Semitic word that means the poor ones. And, and they, they took that name for themselves because they were intentionally trying to imitate what they saw as the, the poverty and humility of Jesus. And uh, later theologians, uh, like when I say later, we're talking about 4th century and 5th century, when they saw this name Ebionites, they assumed that it meant followers of someone named Ebion. And so we, we actually have 4th and 5th century theologians who write about this terrible guy, Ebion, who was a, you know, a horrible heretic and teacher mm-hmm. of heretics. And um, turns out there is no Ebion. So what would you say um, best characterized uh, an Ebionite? Well, you know, it's difficult to say because, you know, mostly what we know about the Ebionites is told to us by their their enemies in the debates, their opponents, um, by those people who were on the side of orthodoxy. And so it's uh, it, it can be difficult to know how to sort that out because, you know, all of these early Christian documents are written with an agenda. And, of course, the agenda of the anti-Ebionite documents is to try and convince readers, hey, don't, don't be an Ebionite, don't follow this kind of Christology, don't follow these teachers. And so, um, you know, we have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt when we read these documents, uh, knowing that uh, a lot of times all we know about uh, this group of believers is what we're told by their opponents. And the other thing that I think is important to understand is that, you know, there probably is not one type of Ebionitism. Uh, there probably is not one group called Ebionites who all thought the same way and believed the same thing. So that just as there is, uh, broadly speaking, a diversity of belief in the early church, there's probably a diversity of belief even within the so-called heretical groups uh, that, that we can identify so that, you know, we may pigeonhole them to make it easier for us to understand and study the differences in the early church. But even within these sort of, you know, pigeonholes that we've created later after the fact, you know, there's, there's still more diversity in there. So, so it's tough to say. Um, but we can, you know, we can talk about what Ebionitism evolves into in the second and third century, and that is adoptionism. And, um, you know, once we get to that, we can start to talk about the different kinds of adoptionism and, and what we know they actually believed. That sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, straight to it. But yeah, so adoptionism, uh, what, what is uh, adoptionism? Okay, so the name adoptionism comes from the idea that Christ, Jesus Christ himself, uh, or Jesus, as they would probably say, uh, was adopted by the Father to become the Son. And usually they would probably have said that the reason he was adopted by, by the Father was uh, because of his perfect obedience to the law. And so, in other words, uh, whereas the, the New Testament says 
that uh, that Jesus is the sort of natural Son of God or the Son of God by nature. In other words, the the biblical language there, the only begotten Son. He's the only natural Son of God. The rest of us uh, can be adopted sons and daughters of God. That's what the Gospel of John tells us. Uh, well, the the Ebionites and then the adoptionists um, extrapolated that to Jesus himself and said, in fact, he is not the natural son of God, but that he is an adopted son of God like the rest of us. He was adopted by the Father because of his perfect obedience, and he therefore became the son. So he didn't start out as the son, but he became the son. Hmm. And that really is um, the crux of the issue. Uh, I'm wondering if we might just uh, take a brief step back and just try and understand how some of these beliefs and teachings began to uh, be formed, which were later then rejected as heretical, and place it in the context of progressive revelation and the the newness that was trying to be uh, worked out in the early church that comes with the revelation that Jesus Christ of of Jesus of Nazareth is in fact Lord, this one who had been crucified and reported to be resurrected. So I'm wondering if you could maybe approach that topic and the dialectic between revelation and tradition. I just think it might be helpful for us to take somewhat of a sympathetic approach to certain groups and movements who didn't have everything handed to them on gold plates, as it were, um, but were committed to this or trying to unpack or uh, explain and articulate and confess this understanding of Jesus as Lord and yet stay within the monotheistic religion that Christianity flowered from um, of Judaism as well as the currents of Greek philosophy and Hellenism as the church began to uh, incorporate Gentiles and grow from the center in Jerusalem. So is there, I'm, I'm just curious how you personally maybe approach that topic with your students or begin to make sense of these things uh, because these, you know, these beliefs don't just drop out of heaven, you know, as it were, but there's, you know, some, some messy historical circumstances as well as just um, a dialectic in the church itself between here's what we confess and here are the implications of it and eventually we're going to rule certain interpretations out of bounds and canonize others as as orthodox. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you know, what I do with my students is I start with the New Testament, and I we talk about how you can already see that dialectic happening within the pages of, of the letters of Paul, for example. You know, Paul um, is calling Jesus Lord, and obviously that, you know, sort of you have to ask the question, well, what does he mean by that? And uh, we have, you know, hints in Paul, uh, e- even going so far as to talk about, you know, divinity associated with, with Jesus. And so, you know, Paul is is taking the incarnation um, and the person of Christ to a place where, you know, he becomes uh, the, the sacrifice for our sins. He becomes the embodiment of grace. And even to the point for Paul where, you know, um, that in some way, is a new revelation that, you know, um, I don't want to say supersedes, but at least sort of adds to the understanding of the law that had been the tradition. Um, Now, you know, Paul has these opponents that we see in 
letters, the Judaizers. And um, they come along and they seem to be sort of pushing back on that idea to say, well, wait a minute, Paul, you know, um, if someone wants to be a Christian, they still have to follow the whole law, right? And Paul says no, because if you have to follow the whole law, then what's the point of the cross? And so, you know, we, we have this dialogue going on already in the first century. The second and third century theologians said that the Ebionites were sort of the, the descendants or the legacy of those Judaizers. Now, we don't really know if that's true. We don't have hard evidence other than the fact that we have some, some theologians who say it. Um, but uh, at least according to the story, uh, that, that way of thinking uh, that is a more, let's say, a more Jewish way of thinking leads people to um, to have an understanding of Christ that you know we might say is a is a more uh, Jewish understanding of Christ or or an understanding of Christ that would be more compatible to first century Judaism, and that is to say that he uh, they, they believe he was not really divine in any sense because to your point, if we ascribe divinity to Jesus Christ then what does that do to our, um, our commitment to monotheism, right? So yeah. the, the, the early uh, Ebionites and adoptionists were concerned that perhaps the way the church was going uh, was uh, an abandonment of monotheism uh, to the point where, you know, now we're going to have two gods. We're going to have the Father and the Son, right? Yep. And as, as I've argued in, in uh, I have another book, Trinity 101, really what ends up happening, in the early church is certainly not an abandonment of monotheism, but it is in a way a redefinition of monotheism to include the divinity of the Son, uh, and then of course eventually the Spirit as well, uh, along with that of the Father. So yes, the the early uh, the the Ebionites and the early adoptionists were concerned about their commitment to monotheism, and so that's why they found it difficult, if not impossible, to see Jesus Christ as God incarnate. Uh, so instead, they saw him as sort of a man who was elevated to spiritual hero status, um, but not necessarily in any sense divine. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, one question that comes to mind is, is there evidence in the source material? And I know we're only dealing with those who are antagonistic towards uh, Ebionism and um, adoptionism, but is there evidence in in the sources that specific texts are un, under dispute? How does the uh, how how does the Bible figure into the debate? Right, right. Well, you know, we have in in some of the um, uh, sort of anti heretical writings, we have references to a Ebionite or adoptionist gospels. Um, the trouble is, we may have some fragments of these, but we really don't know what was in them, and so. You know, we don't know when there's a reference to an adoptionist gospel. We don't know if they simply mean, for example, the gospel of Matthew written in Hebrew, or was it a particular version of the gospel of Matthew, uh, perhaps edited without certain passages, without the birth narrative. We we don't really know. Um, what we can say, though, is that by the time we get to the 3rd century and then certainly into the 4th century, uh, we can see some disputes over particular passages, for example, um, even within the same document, uh, what comes to mind right now is the Gospel of John, where we have a passage uh, where Jesus says, the Father and I are one, and then we have another passage within about four chapters where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Um, so 
the adoptionists would tend to take the latter passage, the father greater than I, quite literally, uh, and try to demonstrate the essential difference between the father and the son. Uh, and then they would, they would tend to try to allegorize away or, or s- somehow interpret the other passage, the father and I are one, uh, to mean uh, something that was more compatible with what they were teaching about Christ. So we have these kinds of disputes, um, not necessarily over the passage itself, but over how to interpret it. Um, if I get back in maybe um, to a, sort of what you were talking about earlier, if, if the Ebionites you know, ha- have an Aramaic name and they focus on the law, my thoughts goes to the Old Testament and how we have this uh, sort of development from Adam as God's son to Israel as God's son, and then to God's promise to David to to be a father to him and to a son a son to him uh, David to be a son. I wonder is is it fair to see this adoptionistic Christology in terms of that development? So Jesus is adopted in a similar way, but more elevated than David was God's son, and and is does that make sense? Um, is that a fair trajectory? And if so, like h- how do we differentiate their view? of Jesus being adopted as son from the sort of relationship that David had with God? Right. Well, that's, that's a great question. Um, in fact, as I uh, outline in the book, it turns out there are two kinds of adoptionism. And um, what we would call, uh, for example, spirit adoptionism is uh, right in line with that trajectory. In other words, uh, in spirit adoptionism, it is a Christology that basically says, Jesus or Christ was a prophet. So, so Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. He was an anointed one uh, in the same way that David or Isaiah or anyone else might have been anointed by God. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, filled him to fulfill a prophetic task. Uh, but ultimately and essentially, he is a mere human being and um, he's not divine in, in any way. But he is basically uh, a person who uh, who had earned the adoption by God, and as a reward for that, he was anointed with this prophetic spirit. Okay. The other the other kind of adoptionism, uh, which I call angel adoptionism, uh, takes it a little bit farther and says that what what Jesus earned in the adoption was the indwelling of an angel, and so. The, in this form of adoptionism, Jesus is still a mere human, but he is indwelt with a spiritual being, not a divine being, not the Holy Spirit. He's not, still not in any sense divine, but there is this temporary indwelling of a spiritual entity that makes him closer to God than any other human being has, has ever been. And so in this sense, in, in this type of adoptionism, um, Jesus is the human, but Christ is the angel who indwells him, and in that sense, he has gone beyond the Old Testament prophets. I don't know anybody who would adopt that view, to, oh, no pun intended, but who would hold to that <laughs> view today. I mean, is it pretty fair to assume that these you know, views of Christ's nature or the way he uh, functions as a son of God, they're, they're basically non-existent today, or, or do we see remnants of that you know, hanging around? No, I think we do. I think we do see this. Um, the spirit adoptionism, or Christ as prophet, I think is pretty much the view of uh, probably Islam and other non-Christian you know, uh, ways of looking at Christ. Um, 
Angel adoptionism or Christ as angel is probably closer to the Christology that you would get among, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses and perhaps even uh, Mormons to a certain extent. I'd, I'd add to that list too Christian science. Uh, they believe that Christ uh, achieved what they call a Christ consciousness. So by following the law and receiving divine favor from the Father, he was born a man, and then at around 30, at his baptism specifically, he received this illumination that he understood sin was just a illusion and uh, that you can rise above it. And that's a consciousness that, that anybody can achieve so long as they uh, truly believe you know, the gospel message according to Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, and stay true to the ordinances thereof. So you brought up a good point uh, and, and something that you implied in your comment and that I want to focus on because I think that, that it's, it's very important. It, it's kind of the bottom line here in some ways, and that is that you know in these other Christologies, uh, it turns out that Jesus Christ is not unique among humanity. In other words, uh, for the adoptionists, and to some extent even for the Gnostics as well, um, what Jesus did any of us could do. And so certainly for adoptionism, it's true that in their Christology, uh, Jesus achieved his superior status, whatever they believe that is, through obedience to the law. And the assumption is that any of us could do the same and we could become what he became. Uh, That's very different from the mainstream or orthodox Christology that says, um, you know, he, he was not a man who became something more than human or a man who became a god. He is God who became a human. And it's that difference between a Christology of ascent for the adoptionists, a man who became something more, versus a Christology of descent for orthodoxy, God who became human. Uh, that, that really becomes the bottom line here. That's interesting. And just to piggyback on that, I mean, my first thought as, as a preacher is that in some ways, you know, that's what people want to hear. They want to hear that, that that they can better themselves and they can become more than they currently are. And I can just imagine, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to adopt these heresies explicitly, but perhaps there's times when uh, we might become functionally uh, focused in that way, and and we might even find ourselves presenting Christ in a way that does focus on Him more as a as a model and as an example to the exclusion of him as the unique God-man worthy of our worship. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's just a comment, but if you've got anything to say well, to that. I, I think you're absolutely right, and, I, and I, this gets back to the other question of where we see these, these heresies uh, today, because, for example, the, the spirit adoptionism, or Christ as prophet, I think for some reason is sort of the end result of uh, some of the contemporary theology that's going on um, in the world of, let's say, liberation theology. Now, I'm not saying all liberation theology is bad or heretical, but where it goes wrong is that it turns Jesus into uh, a mere human who tragically died, but really there's no atonement there. It's more about, you know, uh, you know our salvation is dependent on how we respond to his sacrifice and things like that. And, and so... Um, that that is absolutely true. I mean, to be perfectly honest, though, I don't understand why that is so attractive, because the implication is that if if my salvation rests on Jesus simply setting a good example for me, and I have to do what He did, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be able to successfully do what He did in terms of obeying God that perfectly. You know, I I think outside of um, 
new religious movements, world religions, and maybe even our, our own ignorance of uh, Orthodox theology. Another place I've seen adoptionism in modern times is with critics of early Christologies trying to show that there were competing voices and that there wasn't really an orthodoxy per se. It's just that the guys with the loudest voice won in the end. And I think in particular of Bart Ehrman uh, and his How Jesus Became God, I heard him debate Michael Byrd in New Orleans last year, uh, and he kept coming back to Acts chapter 13 where Paul is preaching about the resurrection. And then Paul says in verse 32 and 33, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us the children, or their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he emphasized over and again, today I have begotten you. So I, I wonder, um, from more of an apologetic standpoint, adoptionism is being set forward as uh, a means to say to those that belong to Orthodox Christian traditions, look, you can't trust pastors, theologians, professors, uh, because there were these competing views. Uh, what would you say to something like that? Okay, so uh, that's a great question. And I think, you know, there there are certain passages that can be in, in Scripture that can be interpreted, uh, you know, to support one Christology or the other. And, and that becomes the point, is the interpretation. So if someone said to me, well, you know, here uh, Paul is saying he doesn't believe uh, that that Jesus Christ was divine because he's quoting this psalm. Well, I would say, well, you're interpreting Paul and probably also the psalm incorrectly. Uh, obviously, that brings up the question of you know how we uh, determine what the correct interpretations are, which is something that you know that that we can get to. But um, but certainly, you know, you're right that there is a trend uh, to to try and say since there were these different views of Christ in the early church, then therefore. They must all have been equally valid, and there was no such thing as orthodoxy. Now, in my book, The Earliest Christologies, that's exactly what I don't say. In other words, I show that there were these five main views of, of Christ in the early church, but then I also talk about why one orthodoxy, as we call it, won out, why that matters, what are the implications for the heresies. And, you know, it's funny because the first review I got on Amazon of this book was, um, the, whoever read it wrote, uh, it was good up until the end, <laughs> which, which told me that this reader wanted me to, after laying out the details of these five different Christologies, he wanted me to say, and they were all equally valid, and orthodoxy only won out because of the greed and power of, you know, whatever. Um, but none of that is true. There, there was a mainstream church in the early church, and there is orthodoxy in every generation uh, and though we do have a progressive revelation where the orthodoxy of every generation builds on the orthodoxy of the last, it's simply not true to say that there was no such thing as orthodoxy before, like, you know, the Nicene Creed or whatever. Uh, one question that arises for me that maybe sort of, or one point that complicates the issue a bit is the Son of God language in the New Testament. So, for example, in Matthew 16, Jesus and the disciples are at Caesarea Philippi. And Peter uh, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, prior to the resurrection, Peter says, you're the son of God. He clearly doesn't have in mind Nicene Orthodoxy or Trinitarian theology. 
Um, he probably means Messiah, you know, as kind of a way of defining what he means by the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the, the Son of God. Probably thinking of passages from the Psalms, things like that. Um, but by the time Matthew writes that down and it begins to get spread around in the first and late first and early second centuries, you do have a more sort of um, theological uh, Trinitarian, proto-Trinitarian, or, or not proto, but early Trinitarian interpretation of the Son of God language where um, you see a, a unity between uh, the God of Israel and Jesus. So, you know, even in that one text, depending on, you know, from the the character in the story's perspective, it may mean one thing, and from the author of the gospel's perspective, it may be ha- has more more levels of meaning. How does that impact the discussion? Uh, how does that impact the way you know, this this may have developed? The way we talk about it now? The way we interact with people like Airman and others? And well, you know, the 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 term son and the concept of the son of God, um, and also the concept of the son of man, because remember. Um, you know, Jesus referred to himself more as the Son of Man, right. and even in the uh, so-called Great Commission, Great Commission passage, where we have the Trinitarian formula in the mouth of Jesus, um, he calls himself the Son, but he doesn't say whether he's talking about Son of Man or Son of God. So these are these are complicated terms, right. and the best I can say is that you know, and going back to that concept of progressive revelation. Um, the meaning of these terms develop uh, develops over time, and um, you know, our we we can never we can never have the perspective of a pre-Nicene person, you know, reading or hearing these terms. We can only look at them, uh, you know, in their you know sort of developed sense, um, because I think to speculate on what Peter meant, um, you know, in the year what was it, 32 or whatever, um, when he said, you are the son of the living God, I think, you know, trying to get inside Peter's head at that point is is not necessarily a profitable exercise. Maybe I could ask my question then about uh, making decisions as a, as a church about, uh, Matt earlier brought up, what texts from the Bible are under, uh, are being contested with the issue of adoptionism and were there, you know, certain passages that receive greater attention in this debate in the second, third, fourth century. So eventually you have an orthodoxy uh, which can arise out of a council and a creed and where certain interpretations of the Bible and Christian doctrine can be pronounced anathema while others are canonized as, you know, the true faith that unless one believes he cannot be saved. And at this point in church history, you have a relatively united voice, or the ability at least for a united voice, and some of that is, I don't know how problematic that is pre-Constantine, after Constantine, or um, east-west after the 11th century, and then certainly after the Reformation. So as a Roman Catholic who teaches, uh, you know, a former Methodist who teaches at a Methodist evangelical school, um, how would you approach the topic of authority in the church to rule on orthodoxy and heresy and to exclude certain interpretations to say, we might not understand everything that this text means, perhaps, um, or this word son in the mouth of Peter versus in the mouth of the Nicene fathers, 
but we can say what it doesn't mean for sure. And it doesn't mean that Jesus was a mere man who was later filled with an angel or spirit and adopted by God, etc. So h- how do you approach that issue maybe personally and then with your students? And um, is there any, any even ability for a Protestant church that is so splintered denominationally and confessionally to make these kind of decisions or rulings today. And obviously we have, at least in evangelicalism, a, a Trinitarian debate raging currently on uh, about how to understand the son's relationship to the father. So maybe you could comment on some of those. Thanks. Well, you know, when I'm teaching, uh, you know, the first thing I try to uh, help the students understand is, you know, we, we talk about the canon of the New Testament specifically and the development of the canon. And I try to demonstrate how um, the canon came to be how there was uh, a tradition already developing before there was uh, even a consensus on the canon. So, for example, in the early debates over, you know, like, let's say with the Ebionites, you know, you might have a situation where someone will say, well, you know, this passage of, of the apostles, writings of the apostles says this. What do you say to that? And the Ebionites say, well, that's not in our Bible. Right. So, you know, you have a disagreement over whether a text should even be in the Christian scriptures at all. Yeah. But then, you know, as time goes on, you get more um, more of a consensus about what should be in the scriptures. Um, but then you still have a disagreement over interpretation. For example, another passage I can think of is the um, it's the Colossians passage where, where Jesus Christ is referred to as the firstborn of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the adoptionist would interpret that as, as if it means that he was created. He's the first created being. Uh, and the Orthodox would say, no, it doesn't mean he's created. It means he's the agent of creation. He's creator, and through him all things were made, right? And it says that in the Gospel of John, and then the adoptionist would say, yeah, we don't like the Gospel of John. So um, <laughs> so you had these, so you had these, um, these kinds of debates that went on over uh, essentially— the interpretation of scripture, because once, once the canon was pretty well, um, uh, defined, uh, there were still plenty of passages that people could interpret in mutually exclusive ways. And so you come to the council of Nicaea and the debate over how to describe the son and the son's relationship to the father, uh, in a way that is that, you know, that is compatible with the, the, what the church is teaching, what the, the tradition of the church that comes from the apostles, and that, in fact, excludes the heresies. And we get this, you know, this famous word in Greek, homoousios, or um, the Latin or Englishized Latin version, consubstantial, right? The son is consubstantial with the father. And, and, you know, what's the first thing the adoptionist said in objection to this word is, where's that word in Scripture? So the interesting thing is, is that the, the adoptionists, or the, the Arians by this time at the Council of Nicaea, they are the sola scriptura party of the Nicene Council. The Biblicists. Yeah. Exactly. And so what we find out historically, and this is what I try to get across to my students, is that historically speaking, it came to the point where we had to go outside the Bible to interpret the Bible. And that's a really important thing for them to understand. Um, and then, you know, then it comes, we start to talk about, uh, you know, what does authority mean in the sense of, you know, who gets to say which interpretations are correct and which ones are incorrect. And obviously, the councils play a big part in that, uh, as 
uh, also the um, hierarchy of the church and the authority of bishops plays a big part in that. But to answer your question about, you know, how, let's say, in a Protestant world, someone might deal with this, um, I actually liked what you said when you said, you know, we, we might not know what the word means, but we know what it doesn't mean. And that sort of apophatic or, or, or negativa sense of, of, um, of understanding our God and the Trinity, I mean, that's, that's a great tradition that goes all the way back to the early church um, to, to, you know, when in doubt, uh, sort of think in terms of, you know, well, what do, we, what do we know is not true about God and sort of narrow things down that way. Um, but, you know, anytime, anytime you don't have a connectional church, anytime you don't have a hierarchy, uh, you're going to have, uh, ultimately, you're going to have disagreements over the interpretation of Scripture that are going to lead to schism. So in line with that, um, going, you mentioned going outside of Scripture to then turn around and to interpret Scripture. In addition to uh, Travis's point, we don't know what X is, but we certainly know X is not that um, what then would be the implications of adoptionism? Clearly, we've moved away from them. Any adoptionism that is present today is outside the realm of orthodoxy for a reason. Um, how did we, as a church, collectively, step outside of Scripture to then turn around and then say adoptionism is incompatible uh, with what we understand God to be communicating to us? Yeah, I think that is exactly the right question to be asking. That that is the so what question, which is uh, you know a great title for this for this. <laughs> That's right. That is so what question, and you know I when I'm teaching, I I, uh, I tell my students there I have three laws of uh, you know of early Christian history, um, and one of the three laws is that Christology informs soteriology. Um, now, sometimes it works the other way around. If you start with a soteriology, you can back into a Christology. But usually, whatever a person believes about Christ, their Christology, will determine and inform what they're going to believe about soteriology or salvation. So in other words, if you have an adoptionist Christology, you are going to end up with, with usually a what we might call a works righteousness soteriology. Instead of, in, in other words... Um, the adoptionist Christology uh, proposes that Jesus Christ is not so much a savior as he is a pioneer. He achieved adoption. Now he's shown us the way so we can do it too. But if you want salvation, you're going to have to do it. It's on you. It's not a salvation by grace. It's not a salvation by divine intervention. It's a salvation by works in which you follow the example of Jesus. Um, and so the problem with that soteriology, as people in the early church understood, is if it's on me to achieve my salvation by my own works, I'm in big trouble. And so that's not good news, right? And so that kind of salvation or soteriology is what ultimately and logically flows from uh, adoptionist Christology. And, and that's why uh, one of the reasons why it doesn't work. Now, I will say that in contemporary theology, uh, often what happens is, is that someone who wants to accept an adoptionist Christology will then sort of throw up their hands and just embrace universalism and say, well, no, everybody gets saved, everybody goes to heaven, so don't worry about it. Um, but that's not really necessarily logical, so you see what I'm saying. So what? 
What does it matter if some believe that Jesus Christ was adopted by the Father? While adoptionism may have originally been a cautious and perhaps even admirable attempt to steer Christianity away from polytheism and a commitment to monotheism, it nevertheless ultimately damages the precious doctrine of grace concerning our salvation. If Christ was adopted by the Father for his obedience to the law, then why not us as well? After all, if Christ was merely an example, our Christus exemplar, then certainly we may work toward our justification. Of course, as John's Gospel begins, Christ is the eternal Word, not a created being who condescended into human history precisely because we cannot achieve obedience to the law on our own. It is His grace, by faith, that our adoption into God's family occurs. Well, join us next time as we continue our conversation about heresy with the crew as we discuss Sabellianism.